feels good to be back on the pod. I missed the show. Did anything uh, major happen while I was away? I mean, not really. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, filed an application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Prime Trust, one of the largest crypto regulated custodians in the US, turned out to be a fraud. Oh. Something else may have happened too. I can't recall, but nothing big. I saw I saw a sailor bought like another 300 mil worth of Bitcoin too while I was away. God, that guy. Let's take this one-on-one here for a second. The BlackRock ETF. I saw this morning that Gary said no, that they uh, need more clarification on the surveillance aspects of the ETF. My sense is that it's part of a regular back and forth with these applications and that also this response and ask for clarification came very, very fast. So with previous Bitcoin ETF applications, the SEC kind of slow walked the process to make it drag on and take as long as possible. To put it mildly. With BlackRock, I don't think they can do that because... They're BlackRock. Yeah, I mean, they're BlackRock. If they mess around, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is just going to kneecap Jerome Powell in an alley. You know, another thing that I saw, I caught a, I caught a little interview with uh, Larry Fink, and uh, he's singing a different tune about Bitcoin. He's not uh, he's not a sailor bull, but um, he's gone from calling it like equivalent of, you know, a scam and a Ponzi to thinking perhaps this has real staying power. And there seems to be, I think you quoted saying there seems to be like a fanatical market for it. Was this also the interview where he said that he was ashamed of his previous statements about ESG? He feels like ESG has been, the brand has been so effectively attacked that he wants to disassociate with the ESG brand, but he still likes the ideas and goals. <laughs> right. And I mean, the, the problem, of course, with ESG is that it just became this label that producers of financial assets would slap on garbage assets and say, okay, this asset is real crap and might lose you money, but it's ESG. So it fulfills your large institution ESG goals. And that's what it does for you. And this is obviously no way to invest money. The go-to example is ExxonMobil is like at the top of the ESG score chart and uh, Tesla is way at the bottom or not on it. And, you know, Bitcoin mining farms that are using renewables to stabilize the grid don't even don't even show up, right? The whole thing's been a joke. But the other interesting thing about that ETF getting declined is it seems like that identical clarification can be made in all the other filings that followed BlackRock and things should be clarified across the board. Like whatever BlackRock does, everybody else just seems to be amending their filings to match BlackRock's. So that shows you how the rest of the market expects this to go. And really, it sounds like the clarification is pretty straightforward. They're using Coinbase as the custodian and Coinbase has surveillance. So they'll just say, we're taking advantage of the custodian built-in surveillance. It's a pretty simple clarification to make. Yeah. And copying BlackRock's application is a good move because from past ETF filings, think of the GLD Gold ETF. After that headline ETF that opened up a whole new commodity or product to be put into this financial instrument, many imitators followed on their footsteps. And I think this is part of an SEC policy not to be a kingmaker. They don't want to let one firm and one product rule the entire marketplace. And I think that's kind of reasonable. So everyone who has an ETF application is going to just copy exactly what BlackRock does with the assumption that they will all probably be approved at the same time. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on June 30th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here remotely, as always, with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. It's, it's great to be back. Hello, everybody. In today's show, we are going to touch on the Prime Trust fiasco. One of crypto's largest and earliest qualified custodians turns out to have 
been engaging in very illegal behavior and has a hole in their balance sheet, which is affecting many crypto and Bitcoin firms. We have confirmation that Apple is removing Domus, a popular Nostra client that initially integrated Lightning payments and then tried to roll back the feature to get through Apple's filter on the App Store. I thought that's something you could give us some perspective on because Apple is a very important platform. And if we can't use Bitcoin and free software apps on it, that disqualifies a lot of people from participating. We have a research paper from the Bank of England that talks about some acknowledgement of liquidity problems with central bank policy. A little wonkish, but maybe worth a review. And we're also going to discuss where is the recession? Where is it? We've been talking about a recession for a long time. So why has it not shown up? And then we've got some feedback and boosts and that's our show. Oh, and a lot of education. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. Oh, there's some good stuff in there, but I like it when we get a little wonky. But before we get there, let's start with Prime Trust because this one, I don't know, some people predicted that if Prime Trust went sideways, it would crater Bitcoin and crater Tether. And Prime Trust is one of the few custodians that's behind many or was behind many very well-known Bitcoin companies. Strike was a Prime Trust customer. They migrated to their own infrastructure recently. Perhaps one of the other well-known ones that I've been a customer of in the past, Swan, which is a Bitcoin-only company that makes it really straightforward to DCA and then auto-withdraw to your wallet, was using Prime Trust as their custodian. They had to do a migration as well before it all went south. There's others, like um, I think there's one that's called CoinBits. There's some that haven't that did not successfully migrate away from Prime Trust as well. And it it turns out that back in like December of 2021, was it or 2022? I, I think I can't recall. Um, they needed to start gambling with customer funds because they lost access to some wallets. And they used customer fiat, Prime Trust, to play in DeFi to try to make back the funds that they couldn't get access to in what they call a legacy wallet. And around this time, the CEO seems to have left, started a new Prime Trust competitor. And then in June of 2023, all of this is now being discovered because Prime Trust has been placed into receivership. And so more information is coming out. We discover that at some point they had this huge hole and they were gambling on DeFi to try to make up for it using customer funds. And not everybody was able to get their Bitcoin out when they discovered something was going wrong. And it it seems like it's hard to trust any company at this point because these this this impacted Bitcoin only companies. But it turned out the custodians they were relying on were gambling in DeFi, playing around with the crap coins. And this really highlights the risk of custody and these traditional custody relationships when we're dealing with digital bearer assets. The fact that there are no clawbacks, that there's no way to do a chargeback, that you can actually literally lose coins, which is what Prime Trust is alleged to have happened. They they were sending coins to an address they didn't have the keys to. And maybe this had to do with some dispute or complication due to the original CEO team leaving and starting a competing trust company called Fortress. But the real issue is when a custodian loses funds and does not have 100% of their client's money, at that moment, legally, they need to notify customers, notify regulators, and close their business and give back everyone exactly what they have. The moral failing here is that they tried to cover up that hole. They raised $100 million of new investment 
not disclosing this loss of funds to anybody. And then they gambled on DeFi. And as a result, a large amount of their crypto holdings is in some sort of altcoin that no one's ever heard of that is completely illiquid. And so whatever the nominal amount they hold, $50 million or something, is actually probably worth a couple million dollars because there's just not a market to sell that. Yeah, not only is the currency collapsed, but you're right, there isn't a market to absorb that as well. This is um, perhaps not as impactful as some expected. Right now, as we look, the price hasn't been negatively impacted by this at all, if you go by that metric. I think in part, both Swan and Strike heavily encourage their customers to self-custody. Strike said something about like 90% of all their users don't store a balance on Strike. Um, And Swan, well, their their whole pitch is auto-withdrawal. So they kind of funnel the customer through a set up your bank account, set up your DCA, set up your auto-withdrawal. It's like kind of a three-step process. And so I think they were in a pretty good position too. And and my gut tells me that both Swan and Strike had a pretty decent heads up. Strike had time to set up their own infrastructure. They migrated from Prime Trust to now they are doing their own self-custody. And Swan had time to move to this new custodian that the CEO set up. So they seemed to start the migration in March. And then over a long weekend, about a month ago, they moved all their customers to the new custodian. And then about a week or week and a half ago, they just got DCA turned back on. And Prime Trust has been insolvent for over a year, I believe. So being insolvent doesn't mean you're bankrupt. You can kind of kick the can down the road. But some customers clearly had a little bit more insight into what was happening there and got out early. Unfortunately, that puts them in some legal jeopardy because... When there is fraud in regulated financial businesses and you withdrew funds before the fraud was discovered, some of those funds can be clawed back. Like it's not fair that you got to withdraw first. When these cases are resolved by regulators, generally they like to pool all the assets, including funds that have been withdrawn, and then divide them up equally according to some metric that the bankruptcy court decides on. Minus lawyer fees, of course. Yeah, huge lawyer fees, of course. So this is why a lot of Bernie Madoff's clients who made fantastic returns from his Ponzi scheme discovered years later that they had to give those funds back and now they you know, had serious financial difficulties. So for plebs who are just want to buy Bitcoin, how does this affect you? Well, it doesn't if you hold your own funds, because if you just buy and stack, you're not really engaging in a custody relationship. When I say buy and stack, I mean buy and withdraw to your own wallet. So I don't think that there is a risk of clawbacks to individuals. The real issue is companies who are holding funds on behalf of individuals and then they custody it with the custodian who then engages in fraud. That's very problematic. So like we've always said, the killer app here is self-custody. And we'll talk about how you can do that in our education section with a great guide on Sparrow Wallet. What a wild couple of weeks that I stepped away. Uh, A lot happened there. Also, you know, I mentioned Sailor bought about 330 million or something like that. But there's another address that Bitcoin Twitter has identified that has accumulated 3.5 billion USD worth of Bitcoin in just the last 44 days. Somebody out there is stacking big time. And is the assumption that it's Tether? Maybe. I think they know most of Tether's addresses, but maybe it's a new one. Um, And, you know, that got us to talking like with these ETFs, uh, it seems to have actually led to some more price performance. And is it the right time to stack for somebody who's trying to stack, you know, 
know, occasionally, do we need to, you know, do we need to think about the right time to stack? And you, before we started recording, you said, well, yeah, you should be looking at the mayor multiple. And I said, remind me, what is that? And then we said, let's put it on the show. So just maybe, could you give me a quick reminder of what the mayor multiple is and how it might be an indicator to watch right now? The mayor multiple comes from Trace Mayer, who is a early Bitcoiner. He invested in a lot of early Bitcoin companies, including the, oh goodness, what was the name of the wallet? The first hierarchical deterministic wallet. No one uses it anymore. I forget what it's called. I used it. I used it. <laughs> I, I know it too. And I just saw it when I was reading about it. It's just a historical, interesting like, oddity now. It. You know, no, no one should use this wallet. It's called like Fortress, not something like that. Armory, the Armory wallet. Armory! So I uh, did a lot of uh, work for Bitcoin, uh, came up with proof of, proof of keys, and he's remembered for the mayor multiple, which is basically the spot price of Bitcoin over the 200-day moving average. And what this does is it kind of gives you a sense of whether or not you're in sort of a exuberant upswing. And the logic of the mayor multiple is that if you buy at lower mayor multiples, you're unlikely to be buying a top. And so the mayor multiple helps you not buy the top of a market and then you have to hold Bitcoin and be underwater for two and a half years, which is rough. So I looked at the mayor multiple again, and it seems that the mayor multiple might not be working as well as it used to, or maybe Bitcoin volatility has just decreased because in the last bull run, the mayor multiple only shot up to 1.4 when the price was at 65,000. And now it's at 1.2 or something like that. So maybe it's working because if you bought at 65K, you know, it's not like we're at 10K and you're going to spend years holding a, a negative bag. But I think that lower mayor multiples, especially under one, is probably a uh, you know relatively opportune time to buy. I don't know, not a financial professional, but it's just something to think about if you're going to do timed buys. And I also think that if you're feeling exuberant and you're FOMOing into Bitcoin, maybe look up the mayor multiple and just see if the multiple has been increasing or steady or decreasing. And that might give you a sense to think, okay, am I getting emotional? Maybe I need to cool down a little. That's a great tip. At the same time, if these ETFs get uh, approved, we know that when the GLD ETF got approved, the price of gold increased by a multiple and stayed that way. So will the same thing happen to Bitcoin? Entirely possible. I don't really know what the correct answer here. And again, we're not financial professionals, so we don't give financial advice. You know, you just have to kind of think about it and figure out, you know, are you willing to risk buying higher and over time maybe having less Bitcoin for the security of, okay, at least I have a certain amount? Or are you willing to risk being priced out eventually? Who knows? And uh, I think it really depends on your cash flows, your personal financial situation. You know, there's just not one size fits all answer to financial questions. Mm -hmm. And risk tolerance, right? I mean, there's always somebody selling on the other end of that of that trade because for whatever reason, a life circumstance, they just like to trade or because, you know, their risk tolerance ran out and they decided now's the time I'm going to sell and just either take the loss or take the profit. So each one of us has to make that calculus. That is why I really like DCA is it does sort of smooth some of that out for me and I just don't worry about it. Um, but I like the idea that if I'm going to do KYC kind of, you know, smash buys, mayor multiple might be a nice way to check to see is the market feverish or are we kind of in a good price range. And that, so, and, and that is based on that 200 day moving average price. And that's something also to kind of keep in mind is that's kind of a, if you look at a volatile asset, but you zoom out a little bit, kind of gives you a, a price reference point, I guess. While you were gone, some drama started around the Apple App Store. Damas, a popular Noster client, received a notice that it was going to be removed from the App Store because some of the Lightning integrations 
violated Apple's rules about not having out-of-band payments. Apple wants all the payments to go through their payment processing system so they can take a 30% commission. This seemed like a perfect story for you because I think you've been thinking about platforms and how they affect developer and consumer behavior and even freedom. And now it seems that Domus is definitely getting removed from the App Store. There was nothing they could do to appease Apple's moderation team. Yeah, that's frustrating. As you know, we've been following most of these individual stories on Coda Radio for a decade. And Apple is better than they ever have been at this, but it's still really, really frustrating. And this behavior is what ultimately will part part of the decision why I switched to graphene. And I use F because I think I, uh, this is suppression of speech. And um, what Apple claims is that uh, Damas or Damas, sorry, uh, they were in violation of guide 3.1.1, which refers to business payments. Uh, they responded to Apple clarifying that it's a tipping system. Uh, you're not unlocking content. It's just sort of a tip to somebody. But uh, Apple didn't buy it. They wanted it removed. They made some UI changes. They resubmitted the app and it seems like it was insufficient. So they are removing it from the app store. Uh, now, the team is going to just completely remove the feature, I think, and resubmit and essentially neuter the application. And these zaps are essentially boosts. You can, uh, in our parlance, in our podcasting parlance, you boost somebody for a good post. You know, like a like maybe is a couple sat. And uh, they call that a zap. And that's fun. You know, people love getting that. It's a it's a it's a great way to actually provide some signal to posts with real value. I see this same thing work really well on Stacker News. It it surfaces the good content because people are spending a hard asset to say this was worth a read. And it's in my opinion a better signal than curated reviews or anything that like Apple does. But Apple really needs to make money from the App Store. Their growth for the future is services and revenue that they make from the App Store is reported as services revenue because Apple doesn't really have much in the way of services. They have Apple TV and music, which is pretty popular, but they don't have anything like Amazon or Microsoft does. So they conflate their services revenue by including App Store revenue. That decision and trajectory to monetize the existing iPhone base and iOS base and try to drive their services revenue so they can continue to drive their stock price has made them turn the screws down on the App Store to eke every bit of revenue they can. And payments is an area that is extremely important to them because that's using Apple Pay. It's using their entire payment infrastructure. Apple gets a significant cut there. And it also helps prevent fraud. It integrates the experience smoother into iOS. The iOS user base has been trained over the years to trust the Apple payment process and they want to cut. They think it's their right because they've provided this great platform and this great app store to make it possible for these developers to create applications. And so they feel Apple is within their rights to take that cut. And they're very passionate. Obviously, what concerns me here is this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem. Zaps and boosts are just the beginning. Lightning enables small transfers of value at stupid cheap prices instantaneously. How can developers say no to that? And this is potentially going to be a problem for podcasting 2.0 apps, depending on how Apple interprets this. Um, so far, they don't seem to be um, running afoul, but I hear from the podcasting 2.0 apps that they get rejected for all kinds of precocious and arbitrary reasons all the time. And it may just be simply that they haven't figured it out because this wasn't a new feature that Damas introduced. Apple just kind of caught it during one of the updates when they were sending out a feature, as far as I understand. I might be wrong, but it concerns me greatly. And the iOS platform is critical for user adoption on the internet. Uh, I see a lot of Bitcoiners that just say, route around it, use Android, use Graphene OS, create a progressive web application. What's the big deal? That's cute, but we sort of settled that debate about a decade ago. So it's kind of time to update your point of view and realize that if you want a serious customer base, you have to work on iOS and you're going to have to work well. Uh, Cash App and Strike have managed to walk that line. The podcasting two apps are walking that line, but it seems tenuous in my opinion. The whole category seems tenuous. 
when you have King Apple. And this isn't going to change unless Apple is forced to change because this is how they're going to monetize their billion phone user base because they've saturated the market with $1,000 phones. The economy isn't really supporting people going out and buying $1,200 phones. We'll see how the iPhone does. But my opinion is they have rightly assessed that the move forward is to monetize the existing user base because their phones last five years. And so you got five years of somebody who's got services. They're all locked into your ecosystem at that point. The moat is strong with the AirPods and the watch and the services. So you're going to just buy another iPhone and then you'll continue to pay that monthly Apple Plus bill and buy those those apps for the So they're playing a long game here. I guess I got out of the Apple ecosystem relatively early, so I don't really appreciate as much how much better Apple is than Android. I've been trained to accept the crustiness of Android, but I was listening to NVK talking about this and he was saying, I mean, he's a huge Apple fanboy. He loves Apple so much and he thinks that us Linux people are cosplaying because we don't necessarily verify every single update that comes via our distro repos. And so we're just cosplaying security on Linux. And that actually Apple does a great job because they do a huge amount of security checks and verification of all software in Apple. That's a ridiculous apples and oranges comparison. First of all, Upstream is doing all of that checking and auditing. Then the distribution maintainers, the packagers are checking. Then you have an entire community of other distribution makers who are also packaging up that same software and doing their checks doing various different processes. So they do different takes at it. And then you have all those different user bases that are reporting bugs. It's a totally different system. So you, it's a software is evolves in free in, in the free software landscape. Software is released in the app store and it's a different model. I, I mean, I agree completely. And the fact that, I mean, what really turned me away from Apple is the forced obsolescence of hardware, which is terrible from a environmental perspective. It creates unnecessary e-waste. It's also terrible as a user experience because I like using a computer for 10 years. My laptop, which is failing us right now, is at least 10 years old. It's hit and miss there. I, I take a little bit of disagreement with that because I agree in the sense that they solder on the memory now, they solder on the disk. Um, if you're buying Apple, I think you have to just accept you're going to spend money. And for some people, that's fine. And if you're willing to spend four grand, maybe $4,500 on a MacBook Pro, that I can, I mean, I can tell you from experience, those MacBook Pros will last 10 years. Apple may stop doing software updates maybe on the, you know, the sixth or seventh year, but then there's community support that continues to usually to get Mac OS. Now this is going to be hard with the processor transition. So some of this won't stick, but I think if you put the Mac aside, because it's such a small user base compared to the iPhone, nobody touches Apple on support for old hardware and maintenance of the OS and software and optimizations for older devices. And yeah, sometimes they blow it at the .o release, but by the point three release, they've optimized it for the older devices. I mean, we have ancient iPads and ancient iPhones that the kids have to play with and they're still getting software updates from Apple and you're lucky on an Android device if you use it stock you're lucky to get two years and so way 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 more Android devices end up in the landfill and a lot of iOS devices end up as hand-me-downs to friends family things like that because they're built really well even a two to three year old iPhone is still faster than the current generation Android it has better battery life it will also just be more stable uh, and it has better app and it'll get five years of patches if not more potential so that I mean I think they do good there with the agreement that the baking in of like the battery, the baking in of the processor and the memory and the disk that limits its potential. So if you buy cheap, then they only last for a few years. But Apple doesn't intend for you to buy cheap, right? Apple is not the savings brand. Okay, that's a really good point because actually we do have an old iPhone that is just keeps trucking and it definitely has lasted longer than say a Pixel 3, which you know took a fall and then just died completely. So that's fair. 
I guess we just have to be practical here. Large numbers of people are going to continue using iPhones and they're going to keep on doing that until the platform gets worse. Yeah. Yep. I think that this user monetization trend is going to make the platform worse because now you have less choice of applications because of these payment restrictions. If Bitcoin adoption goes in the direction we think it will, I think Apple will have their own Bitcoin payments rail. And based on their current behavior, they're probably going to require Bitcoin apps to use their Bitcoin payments rail. Maybe it'll be a node API or something. But it seems to me that if you want to play in the wall garden, you are stuck with those rules. And Apple's such a large company with so much political clout in the United States that they're unlikely to make serious concessions for more software choice, more free software in the U.S., I think it's different in Europe because Europe seems to be forcing them to open up the app store a little bit. And I think that political dynamic is partially that Apple is an American company. So they're going to be a little bit tougher with them outside of Apple's native jurisdiction. I think, you know, in the case of a Noster app, a progressive web app may actually be just fine. There's going to be, I think, a category of Bitcoin applications that won't be ideal as a progressive web app. But I think a social media application front probably could be a PW and that would bypass it. Safari could do the job, but I find it very frustrating that Apple does this. And Apple sort of is the definition of the establishment. They wield that power to get incredible supply chain access and get access to parts and screens before anybody else. And they also wield that power to maintain the status quo because the status quo benefits. And there's a lot of things about Bitcoin that challenge the status quo. And it takes a new type of thinking to recognize how you can monetize that open network versus how you're monetizing a closed system. And we've seen lots of companies make this transition in different categories over the years, but it's not until there is a real financial incentive for them to do it. And it's one of those chicken and the egg things with Apple. They could lead a revolution here, but that's not Apple style, right? So they won't. And because of that, they will delay the revolution on the iOS. And that's why I carry around a Pixel 7 now. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think that was a good summary. Okay, shall I take a poke at being a total econ nerd? Time to get wonky? It is time to get wonky. I've mentioned before that the Bank of England has a weirdly interesting blog called Bank Underground. They also had a podcast about CBDCs and Bitcoin, which was just terrible. It was sort of focused on, I guess, kids or something or teenagers. And it was just the dumbest, most weird softball questions that made assumptions like, if no one's controlling the payment system, it must be dangerous. So that was less interesting than than this article. But in the attached article with the very very sexy name of funding structures and resilience to shocks after a decade of regulatory reform. I read this article and I think it's a perfect example of how completely misled central bank research is based on some fundamental assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that central bank focused regulation is both effective and a good idea. And so it's like people who do research for central banks are wearing rose-colored glasses and constantly thinking how they can interpret the world in a favorable view for their institution. Because in 2023, if you say we've had a decade of regulatory reform, you know, the past decade has been relatively low growth, relatively low amounts of credit creation throughout Europe and the United States, and some kind of disturbing trends in terms of increasing indebtedness at both the business level and the government level. At the same time, it's been a period of increasing central bank power uh, politically in the United States, and I think also in Europe. I think the ECB is a sort of uh, powerful political institution inside the European framework. 
at the same time, we have had bank crises in 2023, also in 2018 and 2019. Everyone's forgotten, but the Federal Reserve tried to raise interest rates and the repo markets exploded. And this happened before COVID. It was unrelated to COVID and they backed off and then they cut rates to zero during COVID. So this paper attempts to explain away why we are still having liquidity funding crises after a decade of increasing central bank power and control over the economy. And it does that in an incredibly backwards way. It looks at credit default swap spreads. So essentially the price of credit default protection. This is a sort of wonky instrument where if you own a bond, you're really concerned about the bond issuer going bankrupt. And so if you get worried about the solvency of the issuer of the bonds you're you're holding, you can actually buy insurance on their default. So a third party will sell you a policy that will pay you if the bond issuer goes bankrupt. This is called CDS, credit default swap. So what they do is they they aggregate credit default swap spreads across countries and they bucket them into sovereign CDS, you know, buying insurance against government default, bank CDS, and corporate CDS. And this is really silly because why are you aggregating this across countries? That's such a huge, broad data sample. You know, it's like uh, generalizing the information to the point where it means nothing. At the same time, what this chart demonstrates is that the highest spikes in credit default protection are all at the sovereign level. And they don't really get into the fact that this investigation is sort of demonstrating a argument that I think Bitcoiners have made and other sort of uh, financial status quo skeptics that at the end of this 50 years of fiat money and credit-based money, we've seen the delay of financial crisis. In the 80s, the savings and loan crisis was contained by allowing small banks to fail. In the 90s, the dot-com bubble was somewhat bailed out by cutting interest rates that allowed firms with debt or high amounts of debt to survive at lower rates and refinance. In 2008, the housing crisis was bailed out by allowing banks and other financial institutions to essentially sell their housing exposure to governments who then put them on their central bank balance sheets. And then in 2020, the COVID era financial transfers from governments to citizens moved the impact of this economic shock to government balance sheets. We have nowhere else to put this debt problem. It's moved upwards through the economy, finally onto the government balance sheet. We can't sell this debt to the galactic empire. We're stuck with it at the sovereign level. I think that critics of conventional economic research and central bank-sponsored economic research might have a field day with this article, but I thought it was just quite interesting because the goal was to essentially create a a sort of hand-wavy explanation for, yes, we're still having blow-ups, but really it just shows that we need additional regulation of non-bank financial institutions. You know, obviously, why are non-bank financial institutions becoming a larger part of the financial economy? Well, it's because attempting to highly regulate banks and having a system where bank failures are incredibly dangerous systemically has resulted in over-regulation of banks to the extent that banks can't perform financial services that the economy needs. And so a lot of lending has moved into shadow banks, non-bank financial institutions, 
which are not yet subject to this strict regulation, which allows them to actually do useful things. But in the process of making an argument for more regulation, they release a chart that basically shows that the financial markets perceive the greatest amount of default risk at the sovereign level since 2020, which is absolutely insane. If you'd said that seven years ago, you would have been a crazy person, but now it's just the status quo and no one talks about it or cares. It's just the elephant in the room. Don't look at that. Do not look at the elephant. <laughs> huh. Interesting. You know, I just saw a statement from old Jay Powell, your buddy, the chairman. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, rates are going to keep going up just uh, like this week. We're taking a pause, but we still plan to raise rates. He could be jawboning, but they still plan for more restriction. And um, that's just going to put the screws on everybody. It's going to be a fascinating thing to to really watch. But uh, I thought we were supposed to be like deep in a recession at this point. And with Jay Powell continuing to crank down uh, on the money supply, where's the where's the big uh, re- biggest recession of our lifetime? Right. Your Bitcoin dad can sound like a perma bear, but then when the recession doesn't show up, he just shuts up. So money where your mouth is. What's going on? Yeah. What's going on, dad? My view is that the metrics to determine recession are very backwards looking and unemployment rates and GDP numbers are frequently revised six months out. So we don't actually know what the real unemployment and GDP growth numbers are at this point. Furthermore, GDP is really not a good measure of useful economic activity anymore because throughout the developed world, the government sector has become, in, in many cases, the largest contributor to GDP. Currently in the U.S., federal government consumption, expenditure, and investment is around $3.5 trillion of a 15 to $17 trillion economy. That's over 20%. And the government does not spend money according to any market logic. It's just political. They just do it. So if we're using GDP as a measure for economic activity and the health of the economy, but over 20% of it is arbitrary, that can hide a lot of economic signals. So that's my caveat. It's hard to tell if we're in a recession and the data is bad. Sure. Okay. I have a question for you. Go further. Um, I know one of the other things that they cite. So spending is one of the things they cite. Uh, They also say consumer spending on goods and services rose by 4.2%. That's the fastest growth rate since the uh, distribution of stimulus checks in Q1 of 2021. Does that account for inflation? So does if I'm spending more on things, but I'm buying the same things, does that do they count that as my spending increasing? And that's my- right. That is counted as your spending increasing. And this is how we actually solve the government debt problem. Because if inflation continues at a relatively elevated rate, let's say 5% for a few more years, your spending is going to increase at roughly 5%. Whereas if government debt is paying yields under 5%, I mean, currently government debt, uh, the, the yield on government debt is, is you know, around 5%. So, but if they can reduce the interest rate paid on government securities, then they can actually through inflation, grow the economy faster than government debt is growing, which means that we're solving the debt crisis by making you pay for it and me and anybody who earns money in U.S. dollars, saves in U.S. dollars, or has assets denominated in U.S. dollars that are not benefiting from this inflation. On the bearish economy side, I would just like to mention that as far as I know, we are still in a state of many tech companies having hiring freezes in place. The Chinese yuan is dropping as their economy is in a shambles. The entire narrative of reopening the global economy and having a big boom was posited on China 
being this massive engine of growth like it was 10 years ago, I'm afraid that's clearly not going to happen because China is a major exporter and there is not export demand for Chinese products at this point. Internally in China, they have a deflationary housing market crisis. In Japan, a similar crisis that was, I think, frankly, smaller resulted in 30 years of zero growth. So that's not looking positive for China. Apparently, college graduate unemployment is reaching 20% in China. This is a nightmare for the CCP. Unemployed college graduates are potentially the most revolutionary class in modern society and are likely they were the group that was at the vanguard of the anti-COVID protests that resulted in a massive change in CCP policy from a total lockdown to total openness. So I think that China is experiencing economic and potentially political disorder at this moment and will not be riding in on a white horse to save the global economy. So my prognostication is that we are likely to see GDP numbers revised down, unemployment numbers revised up, and I just don't see a soft landing scenario, or frankly, inflation necessarily being the main issue for the Federal Reserve. I think that price increases are basically baked in because there was a large injection of money with stimmy checks and mainly PPP loans in the US, which were bailouts to already rich people, because that's how the US works, bail out the rich first. And that money is still sloshing around and gobbling up real assets. What is MicroStrategy doing when they buy Bitcoin? They have an open offer to sell MicroStrategy shares for real dollars that they use to buy even realer Bitcoins. So they're just constantly turning financial excess into hard money. Gosh, I wish I could do that. That's so awesome. Yeah, they're they're printing money to buy a hard asset. Uh, I mean, and good good on them. I don't I don't blame them. I, if I would, I'd also interject one other thing that to me seems uh, compli- like a complication. So you mentioned the China economy didn't really provide the boom that everybody was expecting. Uh, also, the OPEC plus cartel is systematically dropping down production rate to match demand. So that way, even though we're seeing a global drop in demand for uh, for oil, primarily for gasoline, OPEC is cutting to keep supply essentially tight. They cut in May, they, they are cutting in June, and they've announced they plan another cut in production. Um, and they're clearly matching the demand to prevent a big drop in price. That keeps energy prices high. That always remains an economic headwind. If there was, you know, a a fantastic turnaround, which would really be great, if there was, there would be a matching demand for oil. And as it is right now, production outputs, not great. And that would immediately skyrocket. I just feel like that's going to be a problem. Even if things turn around, you have OPEC plus with their hands on that production knob. Um, and also, just sort of as an aside thing, there's some controversy going on right now. Uh, the Australian minister, foreign minister, is skipping the OPEC conference that's scheduled. Uh, also, OPEC has blocked media access to Reuters, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal for the July event that's about to kick off. And uh, this at this event, they're, uh, they're likely to announce more cuts in production as well. And these production cuts are not happening because the global economy is doing well. When the global economy does well, demand for oil increases. OPEC is cutting production because we're experiencing contracting economic activity, and they're attempting to reduce supply to keep prices high. They're also playing this game right now, Dad, where they're cutting their production output, but at the same exact moment they're cutting their cutting production, they've released a PR blast. They've flooded the newswire with their uh, models that project a 
23% growth in demand for oil by 2045. So they're they're playing with the market and saying there's this huge demand that's coming by 2045. Okay, you better buy in now while also reducing supply. Right. And I mean, I don't know what the game is there, but OPEC is a cartel and their role is to keep oil prices high. So their job is to manipulate the oil market, essentially. And I mean, I don't have a problem with that, I guess. I think my point is, it's yet another one of these things. It's like, that's out there. That's going to have an economic impact. Even if the economies were to begin to recover, that would immediately be a wall we'd hit. Yeah, potentially, because I think an argument we've heard is that actually we're now in a resource constrained world. So we may be experiencing a recession or contraction right now that puts demand underneath these hard limits on resources. But the moment we have any sort of recovery, any sort of growth, we will hit those limits really hard and prices will spike and that'll cause issues. So one aspect of attempting to control inflation via manipulating interest rates is that it raises the cost of capital to supply more resources to the world. Copper mines, you know, uh, generating more wheat through investment in farmland. This all becomes more expensive as interest rates increase, unless there are sort of preferential interest rate programs, which quickly lead you to a centralized economy, which honestly, I think is a very likely outcome in the future of US and European economic models. Because a central bank-led economy is already centralized. Why not just go a step further and establish credit policies for different critical industries? Yeah, especially when the federal government is such a large consumer. I look through this and I think part of the part of the question is like, okay, when recession? And when you're looking at all these fundamentals and you're 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 doing the math, it's it seems so inevitable that you think, well, it's gonna be just around the corner. The next the next dam that breaks is gonna cause it because look how fragile everything is. But the reality is these are institutions with incredible momentum, with a degree of management that they can control some of the outcomes, i.e. they can kick the can and they can opt to kick that can many times. Um, you know, Peter Schiff has been screaming since 2008 that we'd be in this position somewhat. Uh, and he was right. He was just about 12 years early. And I think all of this stuff plays out on this frustratingly long time scale that even when we can see where it's going, uh, you, you, it still takes a long time to play out because there's so many interests and so many moving parts and so many random dynamic things that can happen. It's like Dad always says, is like the, con- the economy is like a micro universe into itself. And so you can kind of see where the fundamentals are at and where that's going to drag that micro universe, like that gravity well. You can see where these gravity wells are, but it, you can't really predict how long it's going to take to make an impact. And it seems to me, and I don't really know, of course, but it seems to me like we're never really going to have like serious booms, like the kinds where we're doing these ambitious projects and all these kinds of like really kind of like society changing boom until we solve the energy problem. That just seems that just seems to be where we're at right now. And I think I think the leadership in the White House knows it. And I think that's one of the reasons why they push EVs and solar and wind so hard is they want to diminish the control this cartel has over the Western economy. They're doing it in a ham fisted way, right? They're not solving the renewable problem on the grid first. They're not replacing energy sources first. They're going straight to the end solution and then trying to encourage everybody to get there with tax incentives. So they're doing it in a ham fisted way. But I actually think the motivation from the Biden administration to push so strongly towards EVs and whatnot is to diminish the power of that cartel. And it, you know, of course, ideally would be all generated with renewable. Um, and I think that's until we solve that problem, we kind of have like this anchor around our, our neck. I don't think so much about the energy dimension, which obviously has been driving 
global politics for 60 years now, oil politics in particular. But the U.S. is also, you know, one of the world's largest oil exporters. So I think that the decision to rally around renewables and EVs and this sort of green narrative, you know, I mean, there there is a big political aspect to that. I mean, what I mean is it's somewhat arbitrary. You could see the U.S. doubling down on oil again. And I think that kind of happens when we get Republican presidencies. I think we believe that the long-term solution to global energy issues has to be nuclear power because it is an energy source that produces a exponential amount of energy relative to burning fossil fuels. But as we've talked about many times, that's a very politically complicated and uh, scary proposal for many people. And so progress seems pretty slow on that front. I honestly think that the real issue in terms of slow economic growth is over-indebtedness. I think that there is a pattern in history of debt crises that sort of wipe the slate clean. And because of several factors, we have not had the crisis that wipes the slate clean. We haven't had the, I mean, because we have the US dollar as a global currency, we sort of can't let it fail because it would be so catastrophic for a simultaneous financial default all over the world. Who knows what would happen in that situation? In the past, global monetary standards and banking systems and financial systems were much more fired firewalled off from each other. And so, you know, you could have currency devaluations that didn't affect the stability of the financial system as a whole. That has definitely changed. And so I think that our leaders are very concerned with not allowing any sort of banking or financial crisis because they think it could destabilize the entire global financial system. And I don't think they're wrong. So Bitcoin is important in this context because if these systemic events do occur, and we believe they're likely, there is a perspective that financial and economic crises happen on a cadence. It's kind of a natural cycle. The natural end of the business cycle is a sort of reset of debt, of speculation, of the status quo of economic and political power. And we go through some tumultuous crisis, and this sort of burns down the excess and allows us to build anew, you know, slash and burn, something like that. And this is also the concept of creative destruction, which is a popular economic model, and I I think very intuitive. And the problem, of course, is that if we're in a global system that's globally interconnected, can we resolve a business cycle in a controlled and safe fashion without seriously compromising the structures of modern civilization, which might sound dramatic, or, you know, maybe that is a valid concern or or something you think about. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe we're all overly concerned. But I think Bitcoin fits into this situation quite perfectly because if we are dealing with any sort of financial reset, especially at a global level, we need ways to protect ourselves from this period of instability. And in the past, it was gold. And now I think it's Bitcoin. When I listen to you explain it, I think of my kind of almost an analogy in my head was that our current economy is a caged animal. It's grown up in a cage. It's lived its whole life at the zoo. It's been it's been cared for and managed by the zookeepers. And you can't just release it into the wild. It would get it would it would die. Right. It's now it's grown up and it has it has learned to live in a way where it has to be managed by its caretaker. It's a house cat without claws. Yeah, that's our current economy. And the cat's getting fat and old. But Bitcoin is the, you know, the, the wild cat that's grown up in the woods. And uh, it uh, it's it's lean and it's mean right now. 
but uh, it is built of that world from that world. And I just kind of think those two analogies kind of just really came clear in my head when you were kind of explaining it. It's they're going to do their best to maintain and keep it running. And they have a lot of incentives to do it. People, you know, so much of our daily lives in the West is managed and maintained and made possible by commercial businesses that uh, kind of need to be there for things to go around, for people to go to work, for people to do their job. We need these companies to exist. It's I don't think it is hyperbole. I think it is legitimately the stakes they're playing with. And, you know, once you've set it up to be managed, it can't be undone until it naturally resolves itself. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Self-Hosted 100. We did it. Episode 100 over at selfhosted.show slash 100. We reflected on what some of our most critical self-hosting tools and applications. We also looked at the new Proxmox 8, which has some real banger features in there. And then we covered a couple of the great tools, feedback and whatnot. So check out the Self-Hosted podcast. Get sovereign with your money and then get sovereign with your data. Selfhosted.show. I'm looking forward to that Proxmox 8 upgrade. I'm currently a few upgrades behind. So that'll be exciting. It'll be worth it. And it's based on Debian 12, which is a pretty current release, but Linux 6.2 in there. So you got a nice modern-ish kernel looking really good. I've heard Debian Bookworm is a real banger. (laughs) It is. It's a banger of a release. I shared a guide with you on how to get started with RoboSats. And I believe you replied with a guide to creating a wallet using Sparrow. Or do I have that sequence wrong? Maybe I linked you that. I, I No. Yeah, we do have both in the notes, though. I res, I responded with, RoboSats is great, but I, I suggest people self-host it if they're up for it. That's what my response was. That's how I've been using RoboSats, is uh, running on top of my Umbral node, but if they have just a general Docker Compose file available. And when you do this, you're using your node for all of the network information. And um, it's so simple. It's like the standard RoboSats interface, which is already pretty intuitive. It's just running on your own local system. Uh, and I love this. I think decentralizing the RoboSats front end is just a great thing to do in general. And then using your node as the source of truth and uh, keeps, thing pri- keeps things a little more private. I think that's a win-win. But you do have to probably get started with RoboSats. So they should probably start with the guide you found. And when you host your own front end, this is just a way to rely on your own node. You're still pulling data from a centralized RoboSats order book, right? Yeah, it's all, and that's over Tor. Um, and so what you, you're kind of creating like a front-end Tor client that, yeah, exactly. Instead of using their node, uses your node. Right. So this guide comes from Bitcoiner.guide that has a lot of really useful information on there. And I think it's quite helpful for getting started with RoboSats because it, it explains a lot of the terminology and then walks through a trade with pictures. So it's quite approachable if you're going to be doing this for the first time. And I followed along and I was able to complete a trade without any deviations from this pattern. So I think you can just follow it kind of dumbly and uh, not get hurt. That's a win. <laughs> That's nice. What did you think? I mean, you know, it's using Lightning, right? So if you if you want to get it to like a desktop wallet, you got to go through Bolt or you got to do some sort of rigmarole. But I mean, overall, I'm just curious what your impressions are of RoboSats. I've used it myself and I like it, but I'm also biased because I'm just desperate for a KYC solution. And the fact that they integrated Lightning drew, drew me to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that doing Bitcoin trading on Lightning is great if you have a bunch of inbound Lightning liquidity, which can be a challenge. For us, because we are a little public facing and we have some great community members who have opened channels to us, we often have sufficient inbound liquidity to buy 50 or 100 bucks of Satoshis without any problems. For other people, 
If you do not have inbound liquidity, you'll end up using a custodial wallet with inbound liquidity like Wallet of Satoshi or Moon or something like that or Phoenix or Breeze. I mean, I think Breeze is a little bit different, but they make you pay for inbound liquidity. And if you're using a custodial wallet, you're going to want to transfer it to a wallet you control. And if you're using a custodial lightning wallet, it probably means you don't have your own self-custody lightning wallet. So you need to do an on-chain transaction, which, you know, maybe slows down the process and adds an additional fee. I think it's a great solution if you already have a lightning node and you want to get some more funding on your side of the channel and you have inbound liquidity. But I mean, this is just a fundamental issue with lightning, the liquidity constraints. And I'm releasing a interview with Paul Stork where we talk about some of these lightning shortcomings. This is kind of a theme. Barack also talked about that. And uh, I mean, honestly, I think lightning is really interesting, but um, the liquidity, the more you use it, you realize is a serious constraint to how you can use lightning for a variety of use cases. For nerds, right? I mean, for those of us who care about self-hosting and inbound liquidity and things like that, but for 98% of the user base that's going to use Cash App or Strike or Albi, they don't care, right? Albi's managing that for them. Um, so it, I, I agree it is an issue, but it's an issue for the service providers that are running these things, not for the end user so much. I mean, I know we champion here on this show, self-custodial wallets and we want, you know, of course you want to have your own node and all that, but that's not going to be most people. I mean, if you're listening to this show, you're probably a big nerd and want to (laughs) self-host the front end and you have a lightning node. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's so it's like, yeah, it's tricky for us, but that's because we're tinkering with this stuff. I also just want to give a plug uh, because I've really been impressed with their development. Bolts.exchange, pretty low cost way. They put it all up there for you. They take a 0.5% fee, but they, they, you, you give them lightning Bitcoin and they give you on-chain Bitcoin. And if you're using a wallet, like Sparrow. It is very, very simple to have a receive address that is a new address for every time you do this by default. And then you can coin join right there in the app and then you can sweep them cold storage. So you can go from RoboSats to Bolts. You could do you could actually do an on-chain at RoboSats and just save yourself, but cost a little bit. But you use bolts.exchange. That gives you the on-chain Bitcoin. You coin join that, you sweep to cold storage. All of it's doable in Sparrow. It's and you could go from bolts. So you, you get the lightning, you go right from bolts to your sparrow wallet, and it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, so that's how I would recommend. I mean, one of the ways you could get from lightning off of RoboSats to on-chain in a wallet is bolts.exchange, B-O-L-T-Z. Uh, but there's other services and ways to do it. Like you mentioned, I actually think Breeze has a pretty straightforward process. It's pretty simple. It's really explanatory what it's doing, tells you how much you're going to spend. So it makes it pretty simple too. But I like I like to do all of it from my desktop. I don't I don't like to go do my smash buy using my mobile device. If I can avoid it, I'd prefer to do it all on the desktop. So there's that. Yeah, Bolts is really neat. These atomic exchange services where you you make one transaction and they immediately make another transaction. It is trusted. I don't believe it's sort of cryptographically atomic, but you're only trusting them for a few seconds. You'll know if you've been scammed very quickly. So they don't really have the ability to scam lots of people and therefore there's not a huge incentive to scam. So I think that's a good trade-off. We also have this guide to creating a wallet using Sparrow. And this is provided by a different website, Athena Alpha, that I had not seen before, but seems to be pretty good. And again, this is a very beginner-friendly guide with pictures that can walk you through creating a Sparrow wallet. We talk about Sparrow a lot. It's a desktop wallet. There is no mobile wallet for Sparrow. So if you download a Sparrow wallet for your phone, you're going to lose all the funds you put in it. It's a scam. Sparrow only exists on the desktop. It can talk with your local Bitcoin node very nicely. It does not have Lightning integration yet, but 
a easy to use power user Bitcoin wallet on your desktop. If you're setting it up for the first time and you want to add extra security and cleanliness to your setup, I suggest creating a new user on your computer for Bitcoin stuff. Maybe call the user Bitcoin or Satoshi or Hal Finney or something like that and download the wallet and set it up in a new user so that you don't have all your standard apps and browser extensions active in that profile. That's just a suggestion. Be careful if you have a hot wallet on a computer. Uh, you might also want to consider using a hardware wallet with that, which, of course, Sparrow yeah. supports. Supports are great. I, I feel like Sparrow can be one of those apps. If you're kind of a newbie, you open up and go, oh, but as you use Sparrow over the time, you'll discover, oh, man, I'm so glad it actually they thought of this or they, it does it this way or I can get this. Um, that's what you know, that's what I found. There are other apps out there that might be simpler, especially mobile app. But Sparrow gives you the tooling you might need years into your Bitcoin usage. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're such big fans of it. I wish the developer were completely anonymous and not well known, but I'll take what I can. I mean, there is some sort of uh, trust in knowing who develops it. You know, you can listen to Craig Raw talk on podcasts and he gives a very reassuring vibe, in my opinion. But I like this guide because Sparrow does have a lot of features and this walks you through just the basic features to set up a wallet, generate a new seed or input a seed if you want and, um, you know, get started. Because as we always say, self-custody is the killer app. We also have a very lean Bitcoin optech this week. Do we want to go through it or just leave it in the show notes for everybody? There's not a lot to go through, right? There's some some stuff that might be coming down the pipe, but we obviously would be talking about it again if it actually starts to get close to landing. Um, you know, some weeks it's like these are the things that the dev team or people are working on. And it's it's not like this is landing today or this big thing just changed in lightning. Some weeks just heads down work. I think it's always good to give a shout out to Gloria Zhao. She's doing a mini series on uh, network resources, transaction relay, etc. And in this week's article is talking about how people have been using network resources on Bitcoin in the past, specifically the op return field to store data. And prior to the creation of the op return function, users could create a malformed multisig transaction where the additional keys of the multisig were arbitrary data that could be read by a client-side client to create additional functionality on top of Bitcoin. And I think this was the original setup of the counterparty protocol. I think that this becomes a relevant conversation because ordinal inscriptions are pushing data into witness, the witness field in transactions. And so this raises network fees for everyone on the network. And so it's an ongoing discussion. How do we charge for data on the network? Do we prioritize certain types of transactions? How does the fee market and minor security remain sustainable? So give it a read if you're interested in any of those things. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. There is the Twitter at BitcoinDadPod. No promises there. Conversations going on all the time. Details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. We host a matrix chat channel over there. We'll have links in the show notes. And speaking of our bestest way to get feedback into the show, boosts. And we start with Adriatic Danny, who sent in 99,999 sats. Woo! He is our baller this week. Thank you very much, Danny. He writes, there's been some inevitable price speculation and uh, hype around a proof-of-work project called CASPA, K-A-S-P-A. I'm not invested yet because I'd love to first know your opinion. My technical analysis skills are lacking. I understand all the buzz is about their ghost egg protocol, 
it's posed to solve the historical dilemma with way more efficiency than, say, Lightning and the fact that they have launched fairly with no pre-mine or pre-sold coins. There's no company behind the project as well. Yeah, so they uh, they have this... Uh, solution they believe to the dilemma the trifecta dilemma of blockchains where they can now have one second block time they they build themselves caspa as the fastest open source decentralized fully scalable layer one in the world with the world's first block dag block daj dag a digital ledger that enables parallel blocks an instant transaction confirmation built on a robust proof of work engine with rapid single second block intervals and it is created by uh, one two three four five six core developers um with a large community-ish around them that uh, get elected to certain positions like Treasury, and then the community in Discord and Telegram can vote on how the Treasury spends funds. Uh, it looks like they got some initial funding from Polyjain Capital, um, and the project forego any allocations or pre-mines to, say, quote, ensure transparency. And their big their big pitch here, they launched in November of 2021. Their white paper, though, one of their two white papers that I found and read, uh, was dated February of 2023, but so some of it's still pretty new. They use the K-heavy hash algorithm. Their consensus is the proof of work with BlockDeg. And uh, Dad, I want to know your take on this. They say, to solve the classic trifecta performance problem of blockchain, Casper's consensus layer uses GhostDAG, a proof of work consensus protocol that generalizes Nakamoto's chain into a directed acrylic graph of blocks. The GhostDAG incorporates orphan blocks into the chain to form a BlockDAG, and then uses a novel greedy algorithm to order blocks such that well-connected honest blocks are favored quickly and with high probability. The Ghost DAG allows Caspa to circumvent the traditional trade-off of blockchains, improving on block rate by orders of magnitude while still maintaining the theoretical security guarantees of Bitcoin. Well, we looked at this before the show and tried to understand how this works and failed in my case. I don't quite understand how this because essentially with one second block times it's very difficult to create global consensus and so from the visualizations and the materials on their website they claim that you can just throw all these one second blocks together into a graph and then the algorithm you know picks all the right transactions and therefore you get consensus i honestly don't have a strong opinion about this from a technological standpoint I think that it's very difficult to scale a layer one blockchain at this point. And all of the new blockchains we've seen have been VC backed and have spent a huge amount of money paying for participation. So this seems like a pretty small project. You know, they have uh, billions of tokens outstanding. I don't know what they're worth. I don't think they're worth a lot of money. So projects like this can seem very exciting, especially to newcomers, because you're getting in on the ground floor. And, you know, if you're buying this thing and you can buy, you know, a thousand of them for a penny, what if it goes up to a dollar? Oh, my God, I'd be so rich. So this really reminds me of earlier cycles of altcoins when there was, you know, when Litecoin was launched and there were these sort of alternative L1 blockchains. I really can't comment. I mean, maybe they're onto something here. At the same time, I think they're kind of missing the point because scaling a layer one blockchain has basically been abandoned as a viable way to create global consensus. The one second block times seem a bit fast, so you'd probably end up having to run this in data centers. So the question is ultimately how decentralized can a technology like this be? And the fact is a lot of the early adopters are already in Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that. So why exactly would they come to this new chain? 
Yeah, that's the network effect, right? There's a network effect here that is a serious blocker now. It's essentially a techno it's a, a it's a social moat. Right. And you were saying that they have a very involved community that does a lot of voting and community participation. Did that give you a sense that there was some vibrancy and development there or did you get another feeling? I mean, they're using, you know, they're using things like Go and Rust and other languages that are pretty popular, some Python in there. They're making they're making images that are available for Raspberry Pi, which, you know, that gives me some hope that the node isn't a monster. Um, but then in October, I saw they announced like a, a partnership with a cloud provider that would be doing a lot of node hosting. So that makes me think maybe there's two tiers of nodes or, or something like that. You know, what I saw, because I did I kind of, I dove into their Discord, their subreddit, the Telegram, and I kind of dug through the GitHub a little little bit. And uh, my takeaway was, is this is something that a, a technologist falls in love with because they're, they're trying to solve problems. They're kind of trying to make a Bitcoin Ethereum hybrid that's using proof of work technically, but is much faster. And it's like, if you were a technologist first and you looked at, okay, we need a worldwide digital currency. Let's say you buy that premise, but it, it should be something that's more sophisticated, something that solves more of the problems than Bitcoin does. That would be the way a tech person would look at it. And I can understand that perspective. And I used to look at initially, that's why I came to Bitcoin. Um, but what keeps me on Bitcoin is the monetary policies that are so sound about Bitcoin. You know, this is a new take on the there isn't a central leader, um, but there's still a central group of people that are, you know, intimately connected to some of the technology. And I think additionally, the plebs of the world and 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 the normies and the financials, they look at Bitcoin's rather basic layer one in comparison to things like, I suppose, some of these others. And I think they find that to be reliable. They find that to be more trustworthy. It's more understandable. And that means that then there's there's a space, a market, if you will, for layer two solutions and layer three solutions. And those layer two solutions like Lightning or maybe it's Arc, something else down the road, those gain their very credibility from that layer one, from, from the blockchain of Bitcoin, because it is so focused, it is so trusted, it's so understood. It brings credibility to these other layers, which are market opportunities as well, and often are solving the problems like transaction cost and time. Because one of the things I see discussed in their community quite a bit is Bitcoin gets dismissed because well, you're not going to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. The on-chain transactions would be more than the company. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, it's funny. That's actually a big BSV talking point. And Paul Storks talks about how maybe BS big blockers were wrong about trying to scale the global consensus engine with big blocks because you're not going to fit 8 billion transactions onto software that can run on a Raspberry Pi. But big block sidechains can use that Raspberry Pi level consensus engine as an anchor point to make them sort of cross compatible. So this almost seems like a maybe they don't quite understand the Bitcoin scaling and economic model and they just wanted to do this. So they did it. Well, I think if you look at it as like the technology should do this, Bitcoin should be doing this. If you look at it from the perspective of, well, we want smart contracts and we want to have all this huge supply and we want to have one second block times and we want to solve for that. And we want that to be the base layer. It makes sense. But if you step back and look at it, how things traditionally work and how financial markets are going to be comfortable with this thing and general consumer applications are going to be built, you're going to want this layered approach. You're going to want to have that slower global settlement layer, right? you got to think of the Bitcoin blockchain as a global settlement layer. And then you build on top of that. And that's what gives it its legitimacy. So I wouldn't say don't buy the altcoin if you find it interesting, because if we say don't buy it, it's a scam, and then it goes up in value, you're going to be angry with us. 
at the same time, we have no confidence or deep understanding of this, so we can't advise you to go for it. But if you're going to swim in the sea of altcoins, just be prepared for you know, basically losing all your money. That could definitely happen. So if that happens, don't be upset. Don't get involved to the point where you would have a serious problem if you lost all that money. Don't let yourself be swayed by Reddit posts. Don't get sweat. Don't get swayed by groupthink and Discord. These communities build a, a narrative chamber around themselves, and they're sort of self-selling to each other constantly. And I think that draws people in too. If you get into these into these areas, I mean, everybody in there is so bullish about the future because of they they believe that they have identified flaws in Monero, Litecoin, and Bitcoin, and that they have a you know angle of attack, and it's just going to be a, ma- a matter of time until everybody sees it. In fact, one, not to go on, but this is the last thing. One sentiment I saw over and over that they just loved is there's a meme in the community right now that if you truly understand Bitcoin, then you're already a, a, a what do they call it? A Kasparian or something? If you truly understand Bitcoin, if you're a Bitcoin maxi that truly understands Bitcoin, then you have to love Cast because it's Bitcoin, but better. That's if just If you not really true. understood Bitcoin, you'd love it. And that's the meme in the community right now. Yeah, you can see how they have these bad. sort of self-referential memes that they all buy into and yeah right and just for context this is exactly how the bitcoin cash and the bsv community talk it's very circular it's very cultish they're always pumping themselves up this is how the hex community talks the hex community is incredibly bullish Cardano, big time right and you know we we think those are not good projects so just be careful have a there's good a time, difference, though. right? They're all like emulating Bitcoin because Bitcoin, yeah, there's a big insular culture around it, no doubt about it. But Bitcoin is constantly under attack by preeminent economists, by bankers, by well-known, you know, folks like uh, political commentaries, you know, presidents even. Like it's constantly under attack from that angle. It's at a totally different world stage. And you've got all these massive financial institutions that clearly want your bags, like BlackRock and Fidelity and others that are trying to launch ETFs, right? Like Bitcoin's network effect now is at a scale that these other ones can't even touch like it, it's the we talk about the bitcoin dominance like it's 50 percent. it's not 50 percent. you take out the stable coins and everything it's 90 percent. everybody's using bitcoin right that's the, the markets are going around bitcoin and also competing with bitcoin is the wrong thing to be competing with you know bitcoin is competing with the u.s dollar so if you're competing with bitcoin you've chosen the wrong target you know bitcoin right. is small bitcoin is what is it 400 billion dollars or something or 600 billion dollars it's Maybe the size of the market capitalization of Microsoft, okay? That's a single company. That's not the global economy. I think it's probably smaller than Microsoft. You know, so all of these projects that are like, look at this problem with Bitcoin. Yeah, we know Bitcoin has that problem for a reason because it's hard to solve without trade-offs. And so this technology claims to be solving this uh, blockchain scaling issue without trade-offs. I don't know. Maybe it's worth running a node and you know seeing how you like it. If if you you know if it uses a huge amount of disk, if it can run on a small computer, that's probably the way to start playing with it. Don't start playing around with the price speculation. Start playing around with the backend stuff. See how good it is. See how legit it is. You know, like I I I didn't do like the most extensive dive ever, but I I spent about forty five minutes this morning trying to figure out how many nodes there are, just to get a sense of how decentralized the network is. And I found that they were transparent about many things. 
things, but then a bit opaque about others. And perhaps there is a way maybe on the command line or something like that to derive the number of nodes that are on the network. But I didn't see any public numbers on the website or anything I could find where people knew how many total nodes there are. And so I, that, you know, that's another thing to look into is how truly decentralized is this? I see the donations page, about four of the operators behind the scenes are in the wallet to receive the donations. So there seems to be kind of a display, a, a division of labor, perhaps. I don't know how anybody could create something like Bitcoin without at least some people involved because you have to have extremely technically proficient people to launch something like this. And, you know, nobody's going to pull the Satoshi and just step away. That's just not going to happen. Our second boost was from Cranky Dan, who sent in 20,000 sats. Previous boost showed an error for the portion of the sats that were supposed to go to dad. I didn't set the split, but apparently 95% is automatically allocated to him. That's right. I was ripping Chris off, but I've been <laughs> revealed through the <laughs> transparency of boosts. I'm reboosting and hopefully this time it works. Thanks for you a lot for your show. Well, thank you so much for the boost, Cranky Dan. Cranky Danny, sorry. And you've outed me as a miser. So... Chris is now renegotiating and is, uh, you know, threatening to repossess my Matrix channel. It was always his. <laughs> uh, you know, the, so just so the listener knows, because I know this causes confusion sometimes, what comes in on the boost dashboard for like the message that we read on the show shows your full amount. So if, uh, it, if regardless of what the splits are and how much actually go to dad versus me or like anybody other, anybody else we put in there, what gets read on the air is the total amount before fees and all of that. So you get, you get credit on air. And if anyone has ideas about projects we could support with a boost split, I would love to hear that because I know OpenSats is an option, though frankly, they seem to have a lot of money right now, so I'd rather support a smaller project, possibly. So that would be great to hear from the community. You know, if that dang Sparrow Wallet would get lightning support and maybe their own node, I'd be happy to toss Sparrow Wallet into the split. Oh, absolutely. Great piece of software. Thanks again, Craig. So we didn't get very many boosts this week. We did get a couple that came in above the cutoff line uh, with no message. Uh, XO Remy, 5,000 sats, uh, 15,000 sats over a series of boosts from True Grits. True Grits and we got a row of sticks from Loomer. Uh, but that's it for the boost this week. The show is Value for Value Podcast. You know, we were talking before we sat down to actually record and uh, there could have been and there is potentially an alternative reality where this podcast went the sponsor route and perhaps even through all of our best efforts we would have ended up with a bitcoin only company that may have had exposure to prime trust you know swan was walking around giving out lots of sponsorships earlier this year to lots of different sub medias and i think not to us we though well i if i would have sent swan media an email and ask them, you know, hey, here's our podcast, here's our rate. I bet you, we, I bet you, they would have said yes, or there's a potential they would have said yes. And then here we would be in this awkward position where there's this whole prime trust situation, and we want to be able to talk about it frankly. And our bags would be getting filled by Swan, which would be nice for the show because this week, like, show made nothing. So, well, wait, I shouldn't say nothing. We made some. So, thank you for Cranky Danny, and of course, thank you to our our uh, was it our was there two Dannys? Did you see that? It's two Dannys. Is the Dannys that saved the show this week? How about that? Um, you know, but like we we kind of want to make this value value thing work because this is such a nascent space it's going to be really hard for us to not get rugged at some point right like even in our if we'd done our best and gone with a bitcoin only company this may have still ended up being a very awkward situation even when we thought we were doing our absolutely best it's just the risk factor you take on with sponsors sometimes it's the way you have to go but we're really hopeful that value for value
value, especially with a Bitcoin community, to create a circular Bitcoin economy and actually use the Lightning Network and use SATs for something that people always say nobody ever spends SATs for anything. You know, to actually push back about that, push back against that. If we feel like there's a real opportunity here, uh, but you do have to either use Albi and the podcast index or get a new podcast app and actually boost in to make it all. Well, I mean, Danny got some value. You were working for him researching yeah. this project. So, you yeah, know, we spent it, some time this morning digging into this, both of us. And, uh, you know, that was because he sent a series boost. So we took the we took it seriously. So send a boost in. You can boost via the podcast index webpage. No podcast app is required. You can just install Albi, find the Bitcoin dad pod on the podcast index and boost right from the page. Or you can send us a reoccurring boost via Albi. Details in the show notes. This has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on June 30th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here remotely as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.